And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf starting what is the sixth year of your favorite podcast, the Crude Street Podcast! And we're off after having several weeks of pre-recorded but really interesting conversations with people at World Fantasy in Saratoga Springs. Uh, it's, it's just you and me again. It is indeed. I, I don't think we've actually sat down to record a an episode in a month or more. So, happy new year! Welcome, hap- to, welcome to two thousand and sixteen. Happy new year and happy anniversary! Thank new you very much. Thank you. Now are seventeen years. Yes, seventeen years. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 very nice. Um, a, a, a good thing. Doesn't that sound like really kind of I'm more enthusiastic about it than that, I promise. I mean, when you say very nice, it sounds like, oh, he's still there. he doesn't mind it. It's like, it's all right. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's in, if I'm not mistaken, I may be wrong on the actual number, but, um, but um, the guy in Great Expectations spent 17 years in Australia before he came back to England and made a, and made a hero out of, out of the kids, so... Maybe, maybe Marianne's going to go back and make a hero out of somebody, and maybe, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. I, I don't think so. I think we're, we're, we're fairly sure she's staying. It'll, it'll be fine. But it's been a kind of... It's been, it's been a... It's been a the other thing I'll plug, the one thing that happened since we were on the air, which to, was much to my surprise, is that this, this lecture series, which I've talked about off and on, that I was doing, suddenly appeared. It just appeared, and I thought it was going to be in March, but there it is. It's out there. It's, Clarify again for people what the lecture series series is, Gary. This is an organization called the Great Courses, and they run lecture series, which are downloadable, streamable, video, audio, and that sort of thing, on things from Etruscan art to mindfulness to uh, the, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And they asked me to do one on science fiction. So it's called, not my title, but the marketing people's title, How Great Science Fiction Works. And when somebody asked me what that meant on Twitter, I... I responded, science fiction works long hours for low pay and always has. <laughs> Even great science fiction, Gary? Even great science fiction. Possibly the great science fiction uh, more than most. Okay. Because you realize that I was just about to ask you how indeed great science fiction does work. Um, well, there are 24 half-hour lectures, and if you listen to all of them, you won't have a clue. It's, it's, it's all a scam. <laughs> It's 24 hours of blathering about what I think makes science fiction work. And, 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 and I guess... Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was going to say, and this is available... For, I know it's like like 40 bucks or something on on, uh, on Amazon. It's something around it's on, there. It's on yeah. iTunes. It's on Audible.com. Yeah. Yeah. It's through the Great Courses website. I don't know. There's some kind of promotion with Audibles.com, but I don't think you get the whole series of lectures for that. Okay, okay. Because I was just thinking that you know, sort of la- last year, people got fifty hours of you talking, Gary. Well, that's the thing. This is all for free too. You don't have to pay for the Food Street Podcast. Although we ought to think about this. <laughs> oh, I, I sometimes I think we're charging what it's worth. I think you're probably right. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm. You know, we, we will maybe address that again, uh, and it'll sort of come into play later. But it was look. It was an interesting break. I mean, I, I confess I didn't read a lot of. New science fiction. I was busy working. Uh, I was working on the best science fiction fantasy of the year, Volume Ten, which I now have all of the component pieces of sitting uh-huh. here in the house. So now I just have to turn them from component pieces into a manuscript I can send off to the editor in the ne- you know, the next sort of few days. 
Well, congratulations on that. Ten years of that. Yeah, well, ten years of that series. I've actually been doing best of the year for longer than that, but yeah. Well, different bests of the year. I mean, yeah. now, the ten years, does that include the early volumes with Karen Haber? No, it does not. It does? That's a, that's so, a different series. That's another sort of four years worth there, and there's a couple of years back in Australia when I did it, so yeah. Okay, so that's... Which which raises the other issue, which is in everybody's mind this uh, this past week, and also, it has a lot to do with the question of how great science fiction works. Uh, and I, I, it works, I'm, the argument I'm going to make is that it works largely through its editors. And since you are one, you don't have to necessarily, but anthologists, book editors, uh, magazine editors, critical magazine editors, our friend Charles Brown, obviously, was an influential editor who didn't edit fiction at all. But the, the major editorial figure in the field who died earlier this week, of course, is David G. Hartwell, who did all of those things. He edited a, a critical zine, he edited anthologies, he edited annual year's best anthologies, and he edited a just astonishing range of, of books from the 80s to the present. Absolutely true. I mean, having, I mean, he was active in the field for, it must have been 40 or 50 years. Uh, and in some ways, I mean, we're talking about this, I mean, yes, he did everything. Pretty much. I don't think he was... Well, in fact, I don't think he... To my knowledge that he worked in book printing. But he certainly worked in book selling. He was an avid oh. book collector. As, he, as a matter of fact, he, he ran the Dragon Press. He did was, too. Yes, you're right. He's a publisher as well. Published, uh, published uh, Samuel Delaney's criticism. Well, and a lot more, actually. Uh, that... This is where you can show we're being disorganized because you you braid his book collecting, I think, actually into the public into Dragon or the Greg Press, in fact, because yeah. Greg Press was him as well, wasn't it? Yes. And Greg uh, Press published an awful lot of first hardcover editions of things. I seem to recall they published the uh, first hardcover set of the Fafford and the Grey Mouser stories, all kinds of stuff. Uh, I'm looking now. They published the first hardcover edition of Philip K. Dick's Time Out of Joint. I, no, they didn't. Time Out of Joint was published as a hardback. But when at, at a time when when Dick was not being published in hardback, the Greg Press series did that. Ubik, I think, may have been the first hardcover. Well, I, I think this is where it becomes complicated. In fact, ju- just our lack of focus in describing the influence of Hartwell really does begin to give you a picture of the complexity of his influence in the field. For someone who started in the, in the early 1960s and worked mm-hmm. at a number of major companies, at Signet, at Berkeley Putnam, at Pocket, where he founded Timescape, and where he worked on creating the Star Trek publishing line, and then on at Tor for 30 or more years, his time doing publishing in Canada, um, all kinds of stuff. I mean, there was a short-lived magazine that he worked on, then there was where are we now? 98, 98, 30 years of the New York Review of Science Fiction. There was the Little Magazine. The Little Magazine, the work he did with Paul Williams to help bring uh, Philip K. Dick stuff. Yeah. To, uh, to well, the, the work on yes. which is, for people of a certain age, which means nobody younger than me at all, Crawdaddy was actually a, a reasonable alternative to Rolling Stone for a while in the 60s. Well, actually, that, even that's not strictly historically accurate. It preceded Rolling Stone. I think it did. You're right. It was the first uh, rock magazine, rock criticism magazine, really, of any significant kind, or rock fanzine, really, of any significant kind. Right. And David was involved with that. And that relationship, I mean, this is where, again, we're jumping around. Um, that relationship between him and Paul Williams, of course, led to, an, uh, apparently, from, from a, a, a story told by Patrick 
Nielsen Hayden, a lot of the post, uh, a lot of the later career uh, work for Philip K. Dick himself, you know, sort of, not only did David edit Philip K. Dick, but they, he architected or helped to architect his posthumous career, apparently, which well, is a, a fascinating thing to have done. It's, it's, it's fascinating, and I, I, I don't know the exact uh, in, involvement of, between David and Paul. I know they were they were very good friends, and, and Paul had his, I guess, injuries and problems. But there's an argument to be made in, from the point of view of intellectual history that Paul Williams's profile of Philip K. Dick in Rolling Stone is what really, as much as the movies, promoted Dick as kind of an intellectual darling. That's when sure. he kind of, you know, and and that uh, and that was later expanded into a book called Only Apparently Real. But it, it, to that extent, you could certainly argue that David was in some way involved in the. I don't know, cultural deification of Philip K. Dick, which is both a good and a bad thing. Sure. Um, some of that came from Blade Runner, but a lot of the attention, the reason Philip K. Dick is in the Library of America, uh, has more, with, with you know, volumes edited by, by Jonathan Lethem, has more to do with the Paul Williams article than it does with movies like Blade Runner or sure. uh, that other, the, the other ones, all of which seem to be forgettable. He also played key roles in editing Major, you know, major, major science fiction and fantasy novels over that period of time, not just through his own imprint at Pocket, uh, the other Timescape imprint, but uh, you know elsewhere. I mean, he's been, I think, Gene Wolfe's, if not his sole novel editor, the the major novel editor that Gene has had for the past forty years. Well, the entire book of the New Sun and before everything since that, at least, yeah, has been. Uh, Gregory Benford's Timescape, of course. Uh, Michael mm-hmm. Bishop's No Enemy But Time. He was the U.S. editor on uh, Guy Kay's The Fionnivar Tapestry. On he was the editor for John Ford's The, the Dragon Waiting. He was the editor for um, uh, Ellen Kushner's first novel, The uh, Swords Point, and many, 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 many more. Oh, the list is in- incredible. And he's edited uh, Kip Reed. He's edited Jones Lansowski. He's edited Kathleen and Gunan. Uh, the thing that amazes me, this is where I want to throw out a theory uh, about editors in general, is that these are books that, in many cases, don't even have the same readerships. Uh, very hard, we, we haven't even talked about uh, writers like popular writers like uh, Ellie Modisett. So he can write, he can he can edit something which is which is very commercial and something which is abstrusely literary, and something which is uh, he can edit hard science fiction, he can edit fantasy. Uh, and and get it right. The thing that I've heard from from Gene and from other people is that the editing he does is to make the book more the book that you wanted, rather than to try to shape the book in some other way. So here's my theory, um, which will probably end up on a panel discussion somewhere: that if if a if a novelist is an architect who has a vision, the editor is the engineer who has to build that. And what the editor can do is look at the architect's plans and say, you can't put a window there because that's not going to work, it's not going to support the weight of the wall and that sort of thing. And if you do that consistently and if you do it intelligently, you can, you can be helpful to an architect who, has, who, who, who is designing, I don't know, McDonald's restaurants to a, a blueprint. And, and, and on the other hand, you can, you can work with an architect like Frank Gehry who's completely wildly innovative. There has to be something of the engineering mindset about a good editor. And partly I'm saying that because one of the things that uh, that uh, Gene Wolfe liked about David was that he seemed to s- 
see a kind of engineering thing going on. This engineer himself was an engineer. So how does that sound as a theory? It sounds reasonably practical. I mean, obviously there's a range of editors, and they are varyingly intrusive. Uh, mm-hmm. You certainly hear about you know, write, you know, editors who have intruded into the text quite a lot uh, mm-hmm. and made significant changes or required significant changes both to the detriment and to the benefit of, of, the, uh, of the manuscript. So I think it's a reasonable theory. Certainly all of the feedback pretty much I ever heard about David, and I can say that in my time in the field I never really ever heard good things about David, uh, it was that he was the an editor who was enhancing what was there. He wasn't looking to force and change it. Uh, and it's it's sort of very much consistent with what you hear said about David, that he wanted to be, I think he'd said at one point, he wanted to be a force for good in the field. And I think, you know, that's also the role of an editor. And he very much, you know, he did that. He did that in, in an incredible you know, variety of ways. I mean, setting up world fantasy, running world mm-hmm. fantasy, editing, publishing, uh, social organization that you know sort of the kind of things that he did the parties around the people he, he, that he helped was was fairly incredible um, how does it talk to explaining the role of the editor to someone who's first of all never been edited mm. I, I honestly don't know because the, 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 the sort of the casual sort of way I've described it at times as being like a movie producer but it's more intrusive at times now I'm not a novel editor and I've never edited a novel but it is more intrusive, but it has something of that about it as well. Particularly in the modern in, you know, environment where an editor is required to sh- you know, shepherd a book from acquisition through to publication and all of the promotional stuff that goes with that and all of the marketing and everything else. Well, the role of an editor is certainly different from what it used to be. And, and editing is different according to different kinds of books. In fact, the only time I had any extensive conversations with David about problems he had as an editor... Uh, involved a book he was working on, which I i don't know if I should mention the title or not, but you'll, everybody will recognize it was a major biography of a very major science fiction writer, uh, which ended up in two volumes, and which required an enormous amount of carving and, and piecing together uh, for various reasons. Uh, that's, that's taking... It's something I've seen in criticism, by the way. It's a, you're, you're taking what essentially is a fanish approach. Every piece of information I know about this person is going to go into the book and trying to shape a book out of it. So I know he's been challenged doing that sort of thing. Uh, but it, it also raises up, raises the difference between book editors and, and short fiction editors, which is eventually going to get us into talking about the Hugo Awards because you've got these categories. But short fiction editors, famously in science fiction, were often intrusive. John W. Campbell would argue with his writers. He would make them change the ending. He would make Tom Godwin change the ending of The Cold Equations three or four times. H.L. Uh, Gold, the famous quotation about H.L. Gold, which I'm sure you've heard, he tried to change the ending of Flowers for Algernon to make it happy. The famous quotation about H.L. Gold is he could take a mediocre story and make it into a good story, or he could take a great story and make it into a good story. So that kind of thing... Uh, Maybe people at FNSF, people like Furman, maybe less so. Novel editors don't seem to have ever had that power in this field, or at least not for at least the last 40 or 50 years. It seems to me what they're doing is tweaking and rearranging and fixing more than... I wonder if what you're talking about is a historical distortion. 
because just... the reason I say that is because I don't believe that any editor working today in short fiction does what you're talking about. I think you're probably right. Not a single one. Uh, whether or not they're capable of it, the marketplace, the nature of science fiction in, in the 21st century doesn't support that approach. There is, you know, there's nobody out there leading and forging the field in the way that those editors thought they were or were doing in the golden age of magazines. Now, some of that is a matter of history. You know, they were working at a time when science fiction was being born and being formed, uh, at least mm-hmm. in, the, in, in the terms of you know, modern and golden age science fiction. Well, they were also controlling a handful of gateways. Yeah. I mean, if you, you, know, if you didn't sell to Astounding, you were going to make less money. That yeah. was a flat-out fact for people at that era. That's right. And the thing is, if you look at it now, you know, sort of, if you, okay, if you were uh, a writer in 1939 or 1940 or whatever, and you wanted to get the best money in the field, and you wanted to get, you know, the biggest, you know, the, the biggest audience you could possibly get for your work, and allowing that there was no book, you know, physical book market at all for science fiction, really, at that time, to, to my knowledge, because uh, that mostly came in the 50s, then you had to go through those people. Well, that's absolutely not the, the case now. Yes. You know, if you're, if you're going to go to, I mean, even if, even if, say, the people at Tor, who would be the highest paying market in the field at the moment, even if they wanted to, to do it, which, and they show no inclination to it, no one would be, be willing to be a party to it, I think. You know, they, they would turn around and they would sort of say, well, hang on, I can go to this other magazine or that other magazine, or I'll sell something in book form and move on without it. So the ability for it to happen and the temperament for it to happen don't exist. Well, this is, we had a, actually a discussion in, um, back uh, on, uh, on the Locus online forum or whatever they call those things when Karen Burnham invited us to talk about what's changed in science fiction. And, and you just described one of the things, which is that since that science fiction used to be owned, essentially, by a handful of editors, mm. that's not the case anymore. No. There were generations of people who wanted to shape the field. It's very clear that you know going back to the 20s, Gernsback wanted the field a certain way. Campbell wanted the field a certain way. Uh, Boucher and McComas in the 50s wanted it a certain way. Is it fair to say that maybe, uh, not just among editors, but among intellectual forces in the field, that our friend Charles Brown and David Hartwell may have been two of the last people who really passionately wanted to shape the field? I I don't know. Um, Maybe. I mean, it's very hard to assign motivation when you've not spoken to people. But let's say that I think it's they, they certainly absolutely wanted to and did. Whether they're the last or not, I don't know. And there's certainly still people like Malcolm Edwards around and oh, okay. other major editors around who are capable of having a great influence. Where you see it, or where, where you saw it with Charles, where you see it very much with David, more so with David, really, he wanted to shape the field. He wanted to push it towards his view of intelligent, well-written science fiction and fantasy. And mm-hmm. he did it across a spectrum of paths. I mean, he did it as a book editor, as an anthology editor, as a short fiction editor. He did it as a reviewer and critic. He did it as a bookseller. He did it as a publisher. Because the single gateway no longer existed as much as anything else. I mean, I'm sure it was his own, his own interests, his whatever else. But a goodly chunk of it would be simply, you, if, if you're going to attempt the task, you can't just take one channel. You have to do it across a, long, you know, a broad spectrum of things for a long period of time when charles died uh, i had uh, the year 
the URI died, I think, the ICFA. Uh, David said, to, David was really upset by that because he said that he and Charles had been having a 40-year discussion about the direction science fiction should take. And that it was like, there was a friendly rivalry going on, but it was like, David said, I don't have anybody to argue with anymore. No, no, I think it's true. That's kind of the sense that I have as well because David's, David produced some of the great anthologies in our field, as we've talked about a little bit beforehand. The Dark Descent, we don't talk much about his relationship to horror fiction, but The Dark Descent defined modern horror fiction more than any other single anthology with the possible exception in the possible exception of Wise and Fraser's Great Tales of Terror and the Supernatural from 1940. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he had a very specific idea of what horror fiction was, of what science fiction was, of what fantasy was. And you're right, among multiple platforms, he promoted those ideas. Um, and they were passionately held ideas. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he, he, was, he was really upset when Charles died because he wanted people to argue with him. He used to show up on panel discussions. He was on panel discussion at ReaderCon about one of my books. Uh, and he started out by saying he disagreed with the book. He didn't disagree with it. He just wanted to say he disagreed with it. <laughs> it's, not to get started. it's true. I mean, look, I think it's interesting that for all the talk of science fiction, if you want to talk about him purely as an anthologist, it's my own feeling that he's far more influential as a horror, dark, fantasy anthologist than as a science fiction anthologist. And I think he shared that with Catherine Kramer, I mean, who had been a World Fantasy Award-winning editor of an original horror anthology before she started working with David. Right. The one with The, the Architecture of Fear, was that the one? The Architecture of Fear, yeah, which is a, yeah. a great book. It's, it's, it really is. And uh, there are a handful of horror anthologies that have had... Um, uh, Kirby Macaulay's Dark Forces was, was certainly one that was an original anthology. But I think you're right. I think David promoted horror fiction as literature in a way that um, even the World Horror Organization didn't. I mean, the World Fantasy Award, as conceived originally by David and two or three other people, was essentially a horror fiction award, which led to the Lovecraft statue, which has led to so much controversy. Um, but I don't think it was meant as a kind of Spanish horror award, in, not to demean anybody, it was meant as a way of recognizing horror as a form of literary fiction. And I think going all the way back to David's edit, editing of the Timescape books, he's been, and remember, he had a PhD in medieval comparative literature or something. He did, he did a dissertation on Chaucer, I think. So he wanted science fiction and fantasy and horror to become part of mainstream literature. And arguably the most influential anthology he had in his career, outside of our fairly contained world, was the World Treasury of Science Fiction, the one that got the famous review in the New Yorker from John Updike, um, recognizing that you know science fiction was um, was was a significant part of modern literature, and that was what nineteen seventy or something, or something maybe like that. something like that. The other thing that he did, and which I find fascinating for all sorts of reasons personally, is he was a great mentor to other editors. I mean, it's not something that I experienced myself, but apparently, I mean, I've read powerful statements from Gordon Van Gelder, from Marco Palmieri, from Patrick Nielsen Hayden, and from others saying just how important his mentorship was. And it's something he took very, very seriously, this feeling of passing knowledge forward, of training people up, of getting them involved and active. I think that's part of the general mission of making sure that science fiction survives as some kind of a uh, 
cultural artifact that, that I mean, that one of the things David uh, and I disagreed with, as a matter of fact. I mean, one of the the the, the book that that he said he disagreed with, and then later I found out he was just saying that was one called my book called Evaporating Genres. David fought against that idea. He wanted yeah. science fiction to be science fiction. He wanted fantasy to be fantasy, and he argued that point to the extent that some of his anthologies were, frankly, a little bit eccentric. Uh, they were very personal views of what the field should be, and they were very strongly held views of what the uh, field should be. When he was doing his year's best science fiction, uh, and for about eight years, I think he did a year's best fantasy, part of the rhetorical purpose of that was to say, fantasy and science fiction need to be kept separate. We need to build a wall. Oh my God, that makes him sound like Donald Trump. <laughs> That's awful. I think you better take that back right away. Uh, and be very, be very clear, that's not what you're talking about. Because after all, I mean, one of the things was, I mean, David was doing it by influence, not by force. Well, he wasn't doing it by force, but he, was, he had a belief, and if you look at the introductions of probably the first four volumes of his year's best science fiction, he makes a point, these are stories which are clearly science fiction and nothing else. He didn't want slipstream stories, he didn't want stories that kind of mixed fantasy and science fiction. He didn't want stories that were literary stories where maybe the science fiction is just metaphor. He wanted science fiction in that tradition. He wanted it literary, and he wanted it very well written. In a way, I think the ideal book for David Hartwell's editorship might have been Gregory Benford's Timescape. Yeah. It is a modern literary novel, very character-oriented, very well written, and uh, very well thought out hard science fiction at the same time yeah absolutely true absolutely true and a great book still a great book still a great book yeah so so so, so David knew what he wanted I guess my question is do I mean, you're an editor do editors really know what they want as clearly as David seemed to or as, as Charles did or as I don't know some of these people in the 40s and 50s must have like Campbell I, I think so I think even if you don't have it at the very beginning I think you begin to develop a clear idea of what you want and what you believe is important in fiction and what you want to promote with your career, I guess. What, mm -hmm. what, what, because you find yourself drawn to the kind of work that you admire and that you want to see in the world, and you start seeking it out, you start developing it, you start working on it. Uh, and so you end up with projects that are sympathetic to that, I mean, within the confines of the market and everything else. Uh, and I'm sure it's true of uh, book editors I'm mm -hmm. absolutely sure that you know sort of they go out looking for work that they're sympathetic to within that commercial you know, fr framework and reality and and try and get it out into the world now whether people are sitting there going I think there should be smart literary well written science fiction that doesn't cross genre boundaries and I am going to work you know, ardently to promote that maybe maybe but I'm not 100% sure about that I mean, there, there's, there's certainly room for different positions with this sort of thing. I mean, one of David's arguments, uh, and I, 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 we were talking before the podcast, I don't know when I met David. I've known him at least 30 years. It has to be. Um, and one of the things we would argue about was when we talk about mixing genres, we talk about mainstream or metaphorical or metafictional or doing fantasies, his argument was always that science fiction can do that by, himself, by itself. Good example. Um, there's one of the stories which he really absolutely fell in love with a few years ago was Daryl Gregory's uh, second person present tense. Is that, mm -hmm. that? And David thought this is something 
which is a very literary story. The science fiction idea behind it doesn't drive the story, but it works. And he said, this is somebody who may have invented neurological hard science fiction. And whether that's true or not, it was a way of saying science fiction can expand into new areas, it can use new science, and it can do that without having to borrow from fantasy or from other genres. In other words, it was complete belief in the capacity of science fiction to expand itself indefinitely. Yes, I think that's true. And uh, you have to uh, you have to agree with that. Now, as I as I say, there were some eccentricities in his. I'm not saying anything that David and I haven't argued about face to face. His hard science fiction anthology included stories that, by nobody else's definition in the world, were hard science fiction. This would be the hard science fiction renaissance. Hard science fiction renaissance, yeah. And similarly, I mean, yes, I've as much as I admire some of his books greatly, and as much as I was always interested in his points of view, I. I would say that I equally argued with books like The Science Fiction Century, which I felt were very idiosyncratic. Well, that was one which deliberately left out major figures. Yes, it did, uh, yeah. In the field. And, but the thing is, whenever you confronted David about this, and I think this is another part of the, the, old, the old generation. David grew up in a generation where he used, everybody would see him at conventions. He, would, he, he seemed to know everybody in the field. When you look at the people I've met in the field, mm-hmm. um, between Charles and David, I'm going to say that most of the people I've ever met in the field, I met through one or the other of those people. Okay. I don't think that... You know. with, when, if you went up to him at a convention and said, this is a completely insane story to have in this, or it's completely insane to leave Asimov out of this anthology, he would appreciate that. He was saying, yeah, I wanted to get a rise out of you. It was like... You had the sense he was but, making but, an anthology. But you see, you can't do that in a book, Gary. You can't do it in the book. You can well, do it around the book. Because in the end, you see, you, you can't. there's no opportunity in the book to say, yeah, I understand I shouldn't have done that. I, he would never admit he shouldn't have done it. He would argue he was doing it for a purpose. There are two audiences for a book. There are, and I don't know, again, I, I'm, I'm speaking to an anthologist, a very good anthologist here who has a very clear idea of his own notion of science fiction. David was aware of the fact that there was a readership out there which probably wouldn't care much about the fact that he was putting what most of us would think of as not hard science fiction in his hard science fiction book or leaving out them. But then there were the people he wanted to argue with. Yeah. He, the, the, every anthology had two audiences. The people that David wanted to tweak and wanted to provoke, and the general audience, and basically, no matter what you might think about David's selections, the stories were pretty much always oh, sure. good. Oh, there was look, never, and there was never an unreadable story in a Hartwell anthology. Yeah. It occurs to me, by the way, I need to retract something. I can think of uh, editors who sit in David's tradition. I can think of one editorial team. I think ah. the Vandermeers, actually, although they are completely unlike David in many ways sit in the same tradition very much. Um, in terms of... I'll tell you why. Okay. okay. These are obsessively committed uh, editors with great taste in readable, enjoyable, rewarding fiction who are right. committed and devote enormous energy to uh, seeking and finding high-quality science fiction, fantasy, weird fiction, horror, in different places, and constructing an international picture of it. And they, much as David had his mission to mm-hmm. uh, see science fiction moving forward, 
they are committed to broadening the spectrum to an international picture. And they do it in book after book after book. And most interesting probably for me right now, this, later this year, this big book of science fiction they've done that's like about 72 million words long, I think, maybe 85 million words long. Um, and they did it in the weird when they did that. The weird. I was going to say, those are Hartwell-style anthologies. Yeah. Those are They're that great spirit of exploration to them. Well, I think the other thing is, you make a good point. I mean, certainly they've done things like the Lena Krone things or the Karen Tidbeck. They've, they've promoted Norwegian and Scandinavian and, and, and um, fin- Finnish science fiction uh, in a way that almost nobody else has. Uh, and to that extent, the, and, and from talking to uh, them, they want to shape the field in a good way, too. There's a kind of missionary sense that this is what needs to be done. And more power to them. The internationalization of the field has been one of the toughest nuts to crack. Hmm. Um, and I'm sure they would balk at anyone saying that they want to shape. I'd say they'd, they want to reflect, introduce, exp- you know, and, and show, rather than, whereas David, I think, wanted to mold. That might be one of the differences. It could be, but what's wrong with wanting to mold the field? What's oh, wrong, wrong with love? The reason, sorry, I don't mean to talk over you. The, the reason there's nothing wrong with wanting to mold the field is because you can't, Right. Your attempt can create something within the broader picture of the, that is science fiction, but it's not possible to mold it into one uh, single picture anymore. And so it's fine to want to try. You're, you're contributing to the broadest picture by doing so. I think that's true, but I, I, I think that's also a restrictive definition of what molding means. Molding does not necessarily mean holding on to the same set of uh, the same parameters of fiction. There, one kind of molding science fiction could be essentially what analog has been doing for decades. Uh, there's a certain kind of science fiction that has a substantial readership that wants a certain kind of story that doesn't want too much experimentation away from that. And and keeping that magazine in that mold is perfectly legitimate. It's, uh, it, it, it's, it's a specific kind of audience. Molding the field in the sense of excluding things from it or trying to tell people what to write I think you're right. I don't think the Vandermeers are trying to do that at all. But I don't think David was either. Yeah. I mean, David was... I mean, the thing that continually impresses me about David um, is the fact that he was Gene Wolfe's editor. Now, whether he did much editing, I don't know. But nevertheless, uh, that... The, I, I was looking... I was just working on an essay. We are talking about the early, mid-'80s. And... Um, this SSA is supposed to talk about science fiction from 1984 to the present. If you look at the mid-1980s, everybody, every historian of science fiction, everybody who remembers that period thinks of it as the period of Neuromancer, the period of cyberpunk, the period of, you know, but, and it, which it was, there's no doubt about that. But the same year, Karen Joy Fowler had her first book of short stories published, which in some ways prefigures the kind of fiction you get later on from... Uh, everybody from Ted Chang to Kelly Link, very kind of elliptical, not quite science fiction stories. And in the three years before Neuromancer, the Book of the New Sun appeared. Now, my point is this. If anybody wanted to keep science fiction on a particular track, the Book of the New Sun, which in terms of tradition at best revived the Jack Vance tradition, was not a commercially viable proposition in 1980. It took a fairly visionary editor to understand what Gene was doing with those novels, and to help, you know, shepherd them through what eventually became, what, 12 volumes. Sure. I mean, I will say as well, I mean, if you, know, if you want to start arguing about the 80s, science fiction in the 80s, which is a whole other subject, 
yeah. about which I have very, very strong views, and would say that it was, you know, if it was the time of uh, the Book of the New Sun and Karen Joy Fowler's Artificial Things and Cyberpunk, it was equally, not necessarily fortunately, the time of Foundation's Edge and Robots and Empire and of The Number of the Beast and of the later Heinlein books and of the later Phil Farmer books, Riverworld books, and all kinds well, of sort of bloated kind of science fiction. Yeah. And that was yeah. that bestseller that bestseller sort of theme in science fiction was just as prominent. And in fact, you could discuss as we have that when you look at the influence of cyberpunk, not I mean, yes, it has its origins. In fact, in the early 1980s, with the stuff that uh, Bill Gibson was publishing in Omni for Alan Datlow, but in Chrome, but. If you want to look at when it began to have any kind of impact, even though David Hartwell published Bruce Sterling's Mirror Shades anthology in 85, I think, at Arbor House, right? I mean, because you could argue cyberpunk of a time was started in 1982 and was gone by 1987. However, the awareness of it is shifted forward. You know, it really only pick, kicks up an awareness in 85, 86 and becomes prominent in 88, 89 in terms of people's attention. So, well, this, is the, this is pretty much the argument I'm going to be making in this because you're absolutely right. We think of this as the cyberpunk decade, but actually, apparently, I've not checked out the figures. I did look at some Locust bestseller list, but apparently the best-selling books in the 80s were by Niven and Purnell. There were things sure. like Footfall and Oath of Fealty and so forth and so on, in addition to these late sequels of Asimov and and so forth and so on. Neuromancer only made it to number four on Locus's best-selling list, bestseller list in 1984. The best-selling books were, this is the other fact of the 80s, the best-selling books those months were The Last Starfighter and Gremlins. Yep, I'm not surprised. And, yeah, it's in and Star it, Trek. Interestingly, I mean, the Locus poll, which I would direct any historian to for one particular reason, one reason only, tracks votes down to about the 40 or 50th person, you know, sort of, you know, yeah. nominated work. And it does it over an extended period of time. So what you can see is the awareness of writers and works beginning to work their way up that list of 40 or 50 as people vote for it more and more. The winning That's in some ways is a little bit irrelevant. But what you do is, and what you can see is that Bruce Sterling, Bill Gibson, uh, Pat Cadigan, these kind of people uh, who were writing, uh, writing cyberpunk only drift up later on. They're, you know, they're not making a lot of, uh, getting a lot of attention and awareness when the books are first coming out, which, you know, which well, in, in a sense isn't surprising. It, it, it's true. It, it didn't take long to percolate up. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, Neuromancer did win the Triple Crown in 1985, won the Hugo and the Nebula. And the, and, and the, but then that's so 12 months later, after the books come out. Yeah, uh, but at the time, it was, and by the way, it was viewed in Locus uh, as... Pretty good. Welcome to the welcome to the club, Bill. And not like this is a revolution. It's like this is a good novel, and it, it, it's fine. And um, we we don't know whether it's a revolution or not. Uh, but but that's that's kind of what I think is interesting about science fiction history. Is you're absolutely right. What actually was being talked about and and read uh, by most readers in the eighties wasn't what we now look at as the eighties. And for that matter, if you go back to the sixties, the same thing is true with the new wave. Hmm. Not a lot of people were reading Brian Aldous's report on Probability A. And to this day, I don't think a lot, a lot of people have read that. The, well, I think the single most startling conversation I've had with anyone about the 1980s in science fiction was a conversation I had at, in London with Kim Stanley Robinson. 
and Stan and I were talking about it, and he referred back to this ghastly, terrible decade that was so mm-hmm. horrible to live through in science fiction and so stressful and unpleasant because of all kinds of conflicts. And I'm looking back going, I'm sitting in Perth, Western Australia in, 1980, in the 1980s, soaking up what was an incredibly rich period of time with some incredible work published, just not the stuff that necessarily everybody was immediately talking about. It wasn't the stuff that people were of at the time. That's, that's, that's absolutely the case. And, and one of the things which, which I think is, is fascinating is what was really happening in the 80s that would later foment much more uh, active, a, a, a higher volume of maybe possibly more important science fiction. 1983 or 84, that same period that sort of gestated cyberpunk, was the period in which um, the Interzone editors, David Pringle and I, for David Pringle and uh, Colin Greenland, wrote that essay about radical hard science fiction, calling for something new, which was clearly not cyberpunk. They were not looking for cyberpunk. What they were looking for eventually turns into the new space opera. Pretty much. Which dominates the 90s. Yes. So to some extent, you, you, my, my point is, in 1984, you can see cyberpunk. You can also see those bestsellers you're talking about. You can see the movie tie-ins. You can see the literary kind of crossover. You can see... Um, the Handmaid's Tale, uh, a lot of stuff that didn't come to the forefront as dominant in science fiction until the 1990s yeah. or after were there in 1984 and 1985. Yeah. What you also see is the strong influence of the two other editors who I think vie with David Hartwell for the, ro- the label of the most important uh, post-war science fiction, uh, being World War II, post-World War II science fiction editor. I mean, there's probably two or three. But, I mean, to me, post-war Terry Carr is a yes. staggeringly influential editor. Uh, and then you have Gardner Dozois in his you know, long stint at Asimov's, which was incredibly influential, and his long stint editing the best of the year. And then yeah. arguably as well, allowing some of the work to reprint, but still, Malcolm Edwards, who, who manages yes. to publish more extraordinary work than just about anybody I know. And, you know, I would encourage anybody who didn't to go back and listen to the conversation we had with David Hartwell and Malcolm Edwards about their careers. And you uh-huh. can see just the kind of influence these, these men had. Um, but, I mean, look, the 80s is a, a very interesting time. And I don't know if, if we will ever... I'll be interested to see what you write about it, Gary, when it's all done. Uh, I'll, I'll be interested to see what I write about it as well. But my, theory, my, my working theory right now is... is I'm, I'm working on two... Completely contradictory theses. One, which is that most of what's gone on in science fiction since nineteen, since the mid nineteen nineties, was was clearly visible there in the early to mid eighties. If you look for it, um, the second point is, is that uh, a reader from uh, a science fiction reader from nineteen eighty four suddenly transplanted into two thousand ten or two thousand fifteen would be absolutely stunned at how different the field was. Mm. Yes. Well, there, there are certainly... The multi, actually, the other thing which was interesting in the 80s, because I, one of the books I've got on my list, which I'm looking forward to reading um, and reviewing this year, is, is, is Lobby Tidar's Central Station Stories. So the whole idea that, of the internationalization of science fiction, the mm. whole idea which is now, thanks to Ian MacDonald and... And, and, and Nala Hopkinson and Nadia Korofor and Sushin Lu, the idea that science fiction is no longer an Anglo-American thing that can take place in other countries, even that was there with Jeff Ryman's 
early book, The Unconquered Country. Yes, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Uh, which are, and I mean, and, and of course, Ryman. I don't know if he was ever edited by Hartwell, but was certainly edited uh, for a period of time by Hartwell's protege, or at least somebody mm-hmm. who that he mentored strongly, Gordon Van Gelder, who played a huge part in soliciting, uh, acquiring, and publishing uh, some of Jeff's very, very best work. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, so, 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 th- so there is a, a kind of cascade effect that you begin to see, but uh, it, it's 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 one of the things that makes literary history entirely fun to write in that we can see things now that 10 years ago we couldn't see. And this is one of the things, and it's a conversation, again, that I've had both separately and only a few times, maybe two or three times, as I actually had a lunch or dinner where David and Charles and I were talking. But the thing that amazed me about them and um, intimidated me about them is that they were both like Severian in the Book of the New Sun. They could not only remember all this stuff, but they could remember how they remembered it in earlier decades. In other words, Charles and David could remember what it was like to argue about H.L. Gold when they were 18 years old. And this is just mind-blowing to me yeah. because... Yeah, I, I struggled to remember that. last week, so, you know... Exactly. I'd be the last no. one to, to, be, to be doing that, I can assure you. Well, this one question about David was his book about science fiction, which, again, is a little bit eccentric but very useful, called Age of Wonders. He did do a revised edition of it a few years ago. And it's a really interesting compromise between a, a personal memoir of Fanish history and an academic book. And one of the things that it continually reminds you of is that David is, by training, an academic. Mm. He chose not to follow that career. But he had, yeah, he had, he had those tools at his, at his disposal. I will say, you know, when you use the word eccentric, we've used it once or twice with respect to David, we are overlooking his least contribution to the science fiction field. Least? His least contribution, yes. I mean, for a man who has, frankly, an incredible array of achievements in the history of the field and deserves to be remembered indefinitely as an incredibly important figure, and I think will hopefully be eulogized and memorialized more in the coming year than just here, his least achievement was fashion, Gary. I knew you were going to say that, but he's the only person, as far as I know, I'm pretty sure, the only person in the history of the World Science Fiction Convention to have a tie display devoted to his work. Oh, absolutely. And what's more, he had, a th- he had his own personal theory of fashion. I think the tie display came the year I think he was guest of honor for the, that Worldcon. I believe so, yeah. And I think possibly his theory was published at the same time. But he had a clear known theory of science fiction. You can you're of fashion, you can find it if you Google David Hartwell's theory of fashion. But it actually put in mind one of the few Kickstarters I could imagine supporting Gary and a, a thing that I think would be a beautiful thing. I think everybody should show up at the two thousand sixteen Hugo ceremony at Mid Americon wearing a truly terrible tie. Everybody. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, I think that would be the most appropriate thing I could possibly imagine. And even if you had to hold a Kickstarter to buy the damn things. You don't, no, 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 no. You don't do that at all. I mean, the, the idea of David's ties, I mean, David loved to go to garage sales. He would drive around the neighborhood. From I, I, I never did this with him, people who have told me about it. He would find these horrible ties and horrible jackets and pants and so forth and so on for almost no money at all. So you don't raise money for this. The, this is the other interesting parallel between David and Charles, because Charles had his Hawaiian shirts. And every year at uh, 
the Locus Awards, Connie Willis runs the Hawaiian Shirt Contest, and she lectures the audience that you do not go online and buy an, an, a genuine antique vintage 1940 Hawaiian shirt for $500 because it was actually manufactured. No, what you do is you go to the Goodwill store or to the Salvation Army and find something. If you spend $5, if you spend more than $5 for it, you're not getting into the spirit of it. That's what David's clothing was. It was the same sort of thing. You buy a David Hartwell tie, but you don't go out to Hermes and find the most elaborate tie you can. You go and find something that's really awful. So what I'd say Uh, as well is, if if you're listening to this podcast, this episode of the podcast, and I'll try to remember to repeat this idea through the year a few times as we approach uh, August and Mid-American in Kansas City, if you're attending a Mid-American, you're going to Kansas City, particularly if you prove to be fortunate enough to be a Hugo Award nominee, don't take a tuxedo this year. Don't take a bow tie. Take a terrible no. tie. On a day. Take a terrible outfit, absolutely. Um, and I think that would be the best thing. I think, I, I think it's a brilliant idea, and I think it's a... It's, it's a the, well, David's heart rolls... As David explained to me long ago, uh, like I say, I don't know when... But I remember he was showing up. There's a photograph, actually, of him and me together in really tasteless outfits on the ICFA website right now. Um, his argument was that in order to do in order to do bad taste, you have to have good taste. Yeah. You have to know what to choose. And the thing, the only thing I've seen that actually nonplussed David at a convention was when somebody would show up in what appeared to be a kind of David Hartwell get-up with a pink tie and lavender suspenders and purple shirt and, you know, uh, a, a sports jacket made out of Tootsie Roll pop covers or something. And that person was completely unironic about it. In other words, if David would come across somebody as badly dressed as he was mm. and didn't know that they were badly dressed, he didn't know how to handle that at all. <laughs> And that can happen at fan conventions. That can happen. It can indeed. Uh, I think we can both say that David will be sorely missed, that he made an incredible uh, impact and will be very sorely missed by the field. Well, he was a fun guy to talk to. Here's one of the things that's rare to say about people in the field even now, because I think one of the effects of of Twitter, of social media, of Facebook, of of various kinds of... um, online wars, is that there were people who were fun to disagree with. Mm. Uh, David and I had, fundamentally, we probably agreed about far more things than we disagreed about. We actually had similar tastes. We both had huge admiration for Gene Wolfe, for example. But the fun part of the conversation was arguing with him. And the same thing could have been said about Charles Brown. And I think that kind of person is becoming too rare. The kind of person which you who you look forward to talking to them because you know you're going to get into an argument about mm, them. Mm, very much. Very much so. So our sincere you know, sympathies to, to Catherine, uh, Catherine Kramer, his, his wife, and to his children, all four of them, and to everybody else who knew David. I mean, uh, a sad thing to have happened so suddenly uh, last week. It does segue a little into a couple of structural things we, sh- we might talk about. Since David was the chairman of the World Fantasy Convention, we should mention that, just so that our listeners are aware of this, memberships go up uh, significantly at the end of this month. Uh, they go up uh, by about 60%. So it's worth, if you intend to go to, uh, go to the World Fantasy Convention in Columbus, Ohio, in November, 
worth considering buying now. I may. I still think I'm probably not going to go to the World Fantasy Convention in Columbus, Ohio in November. Well, but no, As I've said many times, I live only a few hundred miles away from anything civilized, and you live in Perth. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. but we should mention also that the um, nominations for the Hugo at the Mid-American in Kansas City, which will be in August, uh, are opening, and that, in fact, I think the hotel block is going to be opening within the next week or so for the Kansas City Hotel Reservation. That's true. And we would encourage you to read widely, view widely, discuss it, listen to. We won't be putting forward anything particularly for the the Hugo Awards, but we encourage you to participate and to uh, support the work you love. I certainly know the books that I'm going to support. I know what I want to win. I'll tell you now, Gary. I want Aurora to win Best Novel. Unless it's Uh, Luna. Unless it's Luna. Maybe 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 Aurora. Uh, I would go for Aurora. There's an argument. We, we could talk about this, and we should talk about it probably when Stan is on sometime. There's a very serious argument, argument to be made that Kim Stanley Robinson is the best science fiction writer alive. I think that there's an now, argument to be made, yes. There, there are other writers who I, I could make good arguments for as well, but on the basis of the last three or four things, one of the things we haven't mentioned about Stan Robinson is, is, is this one-volume edition of the uh, the Washington, D.C. Science in the Capital trilogy. Uh, he, he, he's interested in doing science fiction that makes a difference. So yeah. Aurora is an astonishing novel, and, uh, and it deserves attention. But, you know, let's be honest. So do we. Come on. We've got a podcast here. Well, uh, well we, I mean, we, 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 we've been one vote away at least two years. I mean, not from winning necessarily. Yeah, but yeah. From- well, I guess we should probably touch on this. You know, the, the, the question I've already been asked on our behalf, Gary, what the what the Cood Street podcast is or isn't eligible for in 2016 as when it comes to the Hugo Awards. And as far as I am concerned and I'm aware, we are eligible for Best Fan Cast. We were uh, nominated for several years in a row and then weren't up last year. We did miss out by a single vote last year. And I think it's fair to say, without getting into all campaigning about it, we would really like to be nominated again. I don't have any problem. If you like us, if I you mean, want to support us, yeah. Oh well, I mean, you, 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 okay. There, there, there's, it's just a cool thing. Everybody I know, no matter how cool they are, everybody I know thinks that Hugo would be very cool. How's about this? If enough Cood Street podcast listeners choose because they think there's merit to nominate the Cood Street podcast for Best Fan Cast in 2015. And there's, you know, question, the, the eligibility question is rele- relevant because we were, uh, we collaborated with Tor for a part of the year last year, though that doesn't impact on our eligibility, I believe. Uh, mm. If they nominate us, if we make the ballot, Gary, I will make this commitment, on my own behalf at least, I will show up at Mid-American, I will attend the ceremony, and I will wear a terrible tie in honour of David Hartwell. I think we should both do that, and I think what we should do when you do that, I think you should come anyway. Because Kansas City, everything's up to date in Kansas City. Yeah. It's not a bad town at all. <laughs> but we should arrange times when we would be at the bar at whatever hotel we're in or whatever conventions we're in and talk to some of our listeners, because we have listeners who have shown up at the same convention that you or I have been at and never connected for some reason. Yeah, well, one of the thing, most telling things I heard said of David Hartwell was that he spent his, times, his time at conventions in the convention halls, not in the back rooms hidden away. 
And that's pretty compelling, I think. Uh, certainly Mid-Americon would be a great convention to be out there, and it, certainly if I go, I would be intending to be much more accessible than maybe I, I have been at one or two recent conventions. Yeah, I, I, I think we can try that. And I think that, you know, the Mid-Americon is a, it's a kind of, a Spokane was hard for people to get to and uh, had some odd things going on, certainly as a convention that had, for example, the world was on fire around Spokane at the time. I think Mid-American is a kind of symbolically Middle American convention for people to go to before we go to what everybody's looking forward to as a kind of spectacular, fun time in Helsinki. I think that's true. I mean, I actually think Mid-American has the, chan- the, the potential to be a spectacularly good time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there are one or two minor downsides that have got nothing to do with the convention itself that do weigh in for, me, for my own attendance. But I'm, I'm actually really quite looking forward to Mid-American. I think it should be great fun. Um, I do want to say that it's my intention to not engage in discussing any controversies that may arise during, you know, in the coming six months around the Hugo Awards, at least on the podcast. I'm eager to not get caught up in those discussions again. But, you know, having said that, mm. you know, I'm hoping we'll get a great, a great Hugo Awards, a great awards ser- you know, season. And because we are the tiresome old hacks we are, Gary, as we grind towards our 300th episode, which will come in September of this year, um, it would be nice to be sort of being positive about everything. Reasonably positive. I'm looking forward to, I'm, I'm looking forward to Mid-American in, in all sorts of ways. I think there was a strong year. We can talk about this uh, in forthcoming podcasts. I think it was a strong year for science fiction novels. I think it was a strong year for science fiction novellas. Um, it was a reasonably good year in nonfiction. I mean, I can't uh, again. It's we can't promote ourselves, but you know, because three of the nonfiction books that are up are books in the University of Illinois series, which I was not editing at the time those books were accepted, so I can't keep. Um, and there are um, some really interesting new writers in the field. The Campbell Award should be an interesting competition. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that, uh, by and large, uh, coming in the middle of the country, and I realize that for people not in the United States, Kansas City seems to be what New Yorkers call a flyover state. But I grew up in Missouri. My first experience in science fiction bookstores was at a bookstore called the 12th Street Bookstore in Kansas City. Uh, the only reason I mention the name of the bookstore is because there was also a famous uh, jazz tune from the pre-1920s called the 12th Street Rag, which is also based on that street. And I was 10 years old, and you could buy copies of amazing stories from the 1940s for a quarter apiece. And so we just piled stuff up. Though I'm sure the bookstore is long gone. I'm sure 12th Street is long gone. I'm sure that entire segment of Kansas City is probably under layers of concrete and overpasses and that sort of thing at that point. But from my point of view... Kansas City is important because it had that bookstore when I was a kid and because when I was an undergraduate finishing up at the University of Kansas, the only Cinerama theater within driving distance of Lawrence, Kansas, was in Kansas City, which means that uh, all the science fiction fans at the University of Kansas drove into Kansas City, to James Gunn and myself and a bunch of other people, drove into Kansas City to see 2001 in Cinerama. (laughs) Well, in support of what you're saying, I will say I've attended a batch of conventions around the United States over the past 20 years, and two of the best ones were in places that are stuck in the middle of 
the United States. I mean, yeah. uh, I went to Madison, Wisconsin for a World Fantasy Convention back in 2005, I guess. I don't remember that. And Wisconsin's just a, it was just brilliant. We had a great time. Drove Thanks. into Chicago, hired a van, drove over to Madison, uh, avoided squeaky cheese, you know, and it was fantastic. And similarly, went to Columbus, Ohio, which we really thought was going to be nothing. It was like the uh, the back end of nowhere. It's like, why are we going to Columbus? But it was terrific. And for yeah. all that I have my thoughts about this year's World Fantasy there, certainly the place was great, and the convention that year was great. So there's every right. reason to be optimistic about Mid-American. It does mean if you're coming from outside of the country, it's physically a little bit more compli- complicated to get to. But Right. It is, um, but again, it's um, it's a part of the country that remember you're really in Heinlein territory at this point. Oh yeah, I mean, isn't uh, Kansas City where Heinlein showed up wearing the white suit and they lowered him from the ceiling as his entrance? That may be, but I mean, even before that, when he was a child, he spent some time in Kansas City. He okay. grew up in Butler, Missouri, a small town. So he's a Midwesterner like I am. I grew up in a small town in Missouri, which is the home of. And Pat Cadigan thinks you should go, so of course you should go. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this, this is close to my. This is as close as a Worldcon is ever going to get to my hometown, which is actually sixty miles from Kansas City. Yes. So we can say we intend to go. We can say the Cood Street Podcast, which is you and me. Uh, we would yeah. appreciate your support should you choose to give it in the uh, 2016 Hugo Awards, and that we will be no doubt talking and nattering more. We've got no idea what episodes we're going to do from next week. There is another uh, just as a. a thing for everybody there is another world fantasy podcast potentially uh or out in the out in the ether that could come our way in coming weeks yeah. and we'll drop that in when it comes along and there are a few other surprises that could come along too but we'll just have to wait and see for the moment and, though yes yeah, gary i was going to say we'll be talking to some old friends and some new friends in the coming weeks as well yes uh, and there are books that are coming out that we want to call attention to very very much particularly once I've got my anthologies out of the way and I can get back to reading a little bit. Uh, which I will have done because two to deliver in the next few weeks. So, But for now, I think we have reached the end of what is episode huh, 265, Gary. 265 in the first of the year 2016. 2016. I've been writing on that. I've been writing that on checks. I've been good about it. But that's the first time I've said 2016 referring to this year. Yeah. You realize we are living pretty much in an era when the original Martian Chronicles is already over? Gary, one of the things that went past a few weeks ago was the birth date or the manufacture date for Roy Blatty, the android, the replicant in Blade Runner. Excellent. We're living in most of the... We we passed this when we went through 1984, right? We're living in most of those science fictional futures. I grew up watching Space in 1999 on television. Right, you know, so it's all ridiculous. It goes to show poor science fiction writers. I said it a hundred years later, and then a hundred years later, this seems silly, really. Now, you know, somebody on the podcast, some writer, uh, I forget who we were talking to, who said never put a date in. Uh, Who was it? Was that Paolo, maybe? I don't know, but but you end up doing it. Say, oh, it's 2061. Well, one day it's going to be 2061. Exactly. Anyway, until 2061. We will come back next week and we will talk again with someone about something. But until then... All right. We'll talk to you soon again. And uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Until next week, we remain now, as always, the Coot Street Podcast.